In the name of that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Amen. That's quite a creed, isn't it? In some ways, it's probably a good thing that we don't recite the entire Athanasian Creed too often, or would probably discourage many of you from coming to worship at all. That will be your loss, of course, and not God's, because having a long worship service doesn't do Him any good. After all, God is eternal. We just confessed that. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all uncreated, all infinite, all eternal. When you're eternal, the length of the worship service doesn't matter at all. But for us mortals, long worship services make us antsy. We fidget and shift in our seats. We glance at our watches and wonder if we're going to make our brunch reservations. Sometimes we sneak out into the narthex and have a chat with the ushers, or duck out the door partway through and light up a cigarette, or doodle on the worship folder. Our mind wanders to all of the things that we have to do or would rather be doing when God intended this time to be a respite from all those things that wear us down and use us up. Even worse, some of us view worship as drudgery, boring, a waste of precious time, or an inconvenience. For some, unless we're compelled by parents or our spouse, or are obligated to come now and then to attend a wedding or a funeral, or maybe our niece or nephew's baptism or confirmation, we just as soon stay home. After all, there's sleep, food, coffee, newspapers, and TV out there. There's golf to play, laundry to catch up on, fish to catch, lawns to mow, sporting events to watch or participate in. There's always something, isn't there? And the fact that we feel that way and that many times we act on those feelings is really too bad. Because worship, whether it's long or whether it's short, isn't supposed to be drudgery. But we're the ones that make it that way with our attitudes. It wasn't set up to be an inconvenience to you, an interruption to your oh-so-busy, oh-so-important schedules. Worship is a gift, pure and holy and precious, it's God's way of telling you, you are important to me. I'd like to spend some time with you. I'd like to help you get to know me better. I'd like to share some of myself with you and to give you what I know you really need, whether you know it or not. We know from God's Word that God Himself established the Sabbath and God was the first to make use of it. It's not like he needed it for himself. When you're perfect and holy and infinite and eternal, a day off is not a necessity. But God gave us the Sabbath so that we would have the opportunity to withdraw for a while from the battles that we fight each day with the world, with the devil, and with our sinful flesh. As we heard in our first lesson from Genesis this morning, God gave us this gift of the Sabbath even before the fall 
knowing that His dear creatures could not keep His good creation perfect and that we would need it. It didn't become a command until much, much later. After it became clear that mankind wasn't bright enough to know and to do a good thing unless our noses were rubbed into it. I could ask these young people being confirmed this morning about the fourth commandment regarding keeping the Sabbath. They would be able to tell me how we might break that commandment and how we might keep God's Word regarding it. More importantly, I'm confident that they also could explain how violating that commandment, like violating any other, also denies that very God that we just spent so much time confessing in the Athanasian Creed. The word creed, as many of you know, is derived from the Latin word credo, which means, I believe. It's the very first word of the apostles and the Nicene creeds, those statements of faith with which we're far more familiar, the ones that we say with regularity during our weekly worship services. But is it, does it ever strike you at all unusual that we read something together in unison, but it starts out, I believe? Why not say, we believe? After all, these are the creeds of the entire Christian church, are they not? When we speak the creeds, we're confessing together what faithful believers have learned from God's Word and what the church teaches regarding the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But there's a good reason that the creeds say what they say. While it's true that our faith in the attributes and in the work of God are held collectively by all believers, in the final analysis, what is important is that you, you individually, cling to the faith that God has given you in word and sacrament. Only by allowing God to have His way with you can you have a correct understanding of God. Only in letting His gifts work on your heart can you make an accurate confession of God. Because if you don't, you're trusting in something else. You're worshiping a God that cannot save you. A God that isn't the God given to us in the Holy Scriptures. And if that's the case, your faith is confused. If that's the case, you're not a Christian. If that's the case, you're lost because your faith is in something else. So, in saying the creeds, we confess what we collectively believe as Christians, but we say it as individual souls, each one of us confident in the God that the creeds describe. Just how confident are you in the Athanasian Creed, though? We don't say it often enough to become real familiar with it. So in some ways, we really have to focus on it when we confess it. We can't just zip right through it on autopilot like we sometimes do for the other creeds, for the Lord's Prayer, and even in our confession of sins, can we? And maybe the discomfort we feel with the Athanasian Creed is a bit of a good thing because it means we have to think about it a little. It's traditional that we speak this creed on Trinity Sunday since it does go into such exquisite detail about describing the Holy Trinity and the workings of God, both within and without. But I suspect that the unease with which we speak this creed has other roots as well. As I've already mentioned, it is quite long. And it seems in many places repetitive too, 
a complete bore to our modern psyches, sophisticated beings that we are. We shouldn't get too carried away with ourselves and our discoveries, though. Consider for a moment the fact that what songwriters and advertisers have discovered in just the past few decades, that repeating phrases over and over again will cause them to be absorbed into your subconscious. The church has been using that to convey and teach the truths of the Christian faith for centuries. Further back than that, though, God told His people this, These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. I suspect that another source of the discomfort is that use of the word Catholic a few times within the text of the Athanasian Creed. As Lutherans, it's unfortunate that we often run screaming from that word as though our clothes are on fire. Well, don't look now, but the fact is, the original texts of both the Apostles and the Nicene Creeds also use that same word, Catholic, as in, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. Or, one holy Catholic and apostolic church. But by saying this word, we're not confessing allegiance to the Pope or sidestepping the many concerns we still have with some of the teachings of the Roman Church. Nor am I going to suggest that we begin to offer any sort of indulgences here, at least not, beca- not beyond the occasional dove bar or a good porterhouse steak. Instead, in using the word Catholic, we are confessing that we, as Lutheran Christians, believe and trust in the same God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that the historic church, dating back to its earliest days, confessed and taught. The other seemingly problematic area of the Athanasian Creed, and I know it was for some of you, because I could hear your voices change when we got to it, is found almost at the end. There we say, Those who have done good will enter into eternal life, and those who have done evil into eternal fire. Yikes, Pastor! That sounds an awful lot like salvation by works, not salvation by grace through faith in Christ's atoning work alone. And you know, on the surface, I can't disagree with you if we just isolate that one sentence. But look further, and you'll see what doing good and doing evil really are in the end. The fact is, you cannot do any good without faith in Christ. Only through the Holy Spirit working in you can you do true good, God-pleasing good, and can anything be accomplished. Anything else that we might humanly do for the betterment of others, independent of God's motivation, while it might be helpful and beneficial and even appreciated by them, is not really good at all in God's eyes. But when the Holy Spirit is working within us, that's not only doing good because it is God's doing, but it is also an act of faith. And faith is the ultimate good gift for us and for others. Likewise, as the Scriptures tell us, 
There is only one unforgivable sin, one ultimate evil. It's blaspheming the Holy Spirit. It's denying the work of God in our lives and claiming that place of authority for ourselves. It's rejecting who and what God is and has done for us and for the world. In a word, it's unbelief. Doing evil, then, is rejecting God and instead laying hold of all those things that are not God as being precious and important to us. And doing good is trustingly accepting what God has revealed to us through His Word and letting Him have His way in and with us. Are you still uncomfortable about the Athanasian Creed? Does that word Catholic and that phrase about doing good and doing evil still bother you? Well, let me give you a little quotation from the book of Concord, which the Lutheran Church has for over four centuries confessed to be a proper exposition of God's holy scripture and to which it has pledged its faithfulness. This comes from the preface of that monumental work and is the summary of the Reformer's thinking toward the Christian faith and toward its objectives. It reads as follows. In conclusion, we repeat once again that we are not minded to manufacture anything new by this work of agreement or to depart in any way at all, either in content or formulation, from the divine truth that our pious forebears and we have acknowledged and confessed in the past. For our agreement is based on the prophetic and apostolic scriptures and comprehended in the three creeds as well as in the Augsburg Confession, in the Apology that followed it, and in the small called articles, and the large and small catechism. End quote. If you're a Lutheran then, and even if you're not, then the Athanasian Creed is to be your creed no less than are the Apostles or Nicene Creeds. What's more, it is the whole church's creed a statement of belief that can be confidently and faithfully confessed by anyone who claims to be a Christian. To reject the creed is to reject what the creed confesses. God as God truly is. God eternal. God almighty. God for you. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You cannot reject your Creator and expect to be part of His new creation of water and of the Word. You cannot reject your Redeemer and expect to have His redemption applied to you. You cannot reject your Sanctifier and expect to be sanctified. But because you are here today, no matter how eagerly or how reluctantly, no matter how distracted or how anxious you are, something miraculous has happened here. God's Word has been spoken to you. And if it be His will, your faith will be strengthened, recreated, and renewed. Or perhaps for some small number of you, it will be given to you for the very first time. We are all here today because of a couple of factors. First, what God did in Jesus Christ. Those very things that we confessed in the Creed a short time ago. The full divinity. The human incarnation. The suffering for our salvation. The resurrection and the ascension. And second, we are here because of what Jesus commanded the eleven in today's gospel lesson, to make disciples of all nations by baptizing them in the name of that confessed God, 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and to teach others what has been taught to them. Our Savior promised that He would be with His church always to the close of the age. And one of the ways He is always with us is in His Word, both in the Bible and in all of the other ways that His Word can rightly take, including the creeds. Your loving God will remain with you and in you, and most importantly, for you, in this age and for all time to come. This is the faith. Whoever believes it faithfully and firmly will be saved. In the name of that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit whom we confess, Amen.